Welcome back to He Leadeth Me, a spiritual formation podcast for Focus staff, students, and friends. I'm Jessica, Focus's Manager of Spiritual Formation, and today, once again, I am joined by our friend, Father James Brent. Father James is a Dominican priest and a professor at Dominican House of Studies. Great to have you again, Father James. Thanks, Jesse. It's great to be back. So, Father, last time we talked about the effects of Holy Communion, and we talked about how it can bring healing to the soul and purification and enlightenment and so many other things. And you were saying that these are things that Jesus does in us. We don't do them in ourselves or work at them. He just does it in us. But you did say that we can receive a greater degree of these effects if we are better disposed. Yes. So I wanted to talk today about what exactly does that mean? How can we be better disposed to receive these amazing effects of Holy Communion? Well, thanks for asking. That's a great question. It's a very important topic. We don't talk about it enough in the church, and it makes a great difference in the spiritual life. It makes a great difference in how a person advances in the life of grace. Because Holy Communion is so powerful, and it is um, this cause that works in us, we want to be as fully receptive to its working power as we possibly can be, so that we might grow in grace. So the topic is sometimes called subjective dispositions. So the Eucharist is an objective reality. It's there, the, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus is this in the sacrament. It's on the altar. He is on the altar, and he's given to us. The subjective dispositions are the state of mind or the state of heart, the condition of mind and heart that the person is in as they are getting ready to receive Holy Communion or are preparing to receive Holy Communion. Those are called subjective dispositions. And basically, the principle is that the better our subjective dispositions are, the more fruitful the Holy Communion will be, or the more effective it will be, the more that we will be able to share or receive of its its powerful effects. So you're asking about subjective dispositions, and and it's a, an important topic and a delicate topic in a way, because there's, on the one hand, there's like minimal dispositions that we need in order to receive Holy Communion. Uh, these are dispositions that are so minimal that if you don't have them, you really should not receive Holy Communion. You should refrain from so It's like permission to play. Yeah, basically. So we could call these like the minimal dispositions or the minimal requirements. Then there's other dispositions that are more like better dispositions. They're, they're, uh, the more of them you have, the better off that you will be uh, in receiving the sacrament. So let's talk first about the minimal dispositions. And there's a passage in St. Paul from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where he says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Now, that's a mysterious passage. 
And basically, the church uh, helps us to understand it very clearly in the Catechism at paragraph 1385. The Catechism says very plainly, anyone conscious of a grave sin must receive the sacrament of reconciliation before coming to communion. So if anyone is yeah, conscious of grave sin, if you've got serious sin on your soul, on your conscience, so there's great, you've done something that is a, a grave matter, you knew it was wrong, you freely chose to do it uh, anyways, um, that is serious sin. And if you've got something like that on your conscience, you should refrain from receiving Holy Communion in general. We'll qualify that in a moment. But generally speaking, if you've got serious sin on your conscience, you should refrain. And that teaching of the church is simply an application of what St. an interpretation and application of what St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians. This is very important uh, for focused missionaries in their instruction with students, because I think it's very common for college students to live a a hedonistic lifestyle. They give themselves up to very serious drinking, to drug use, to fornication, uh, or worse, maybe even adultery, um, pornography usage. Uh, Some of them will have taken the abortion pill, perhaps, on various times or occasions. And they commonly have serious sin in their lives. And then they will go home for a Christmas vacation and just kind of go for, you know, go with their parents to mass and they'll just go down and receive Holy Communion uh, without thinking twice about it, without even making an act of contrition, without ever having any intention to change or amend their lives. And that's a very serious problem. uh, And it's a sin. So not only would a person who has sin on their soul, suppose you have someone who has grave sin on his soul, and then the person without being repentant goes forward and receives Holy Communion, not only does the person have the first sin on his or her soul, now having received Holy Communion, there's further sin on the person's soul. So it's very important for us to go to the sacrament of penance, if at all possible, uh, before Holy Communion in order to be uh, absolved of any grave sins that are on our soul. Okay. Now, we want to get clear that the church does sort of qualify that in a way. Um, and basically, there's a passage in, or, or something spelled out in the Code of Canon Law. Uh, 916 sort of spells out like the full condition, or the full principle, we should say. Here's what it says. A person who is conscious of grave sin is not to celebrate Mass. That's in reference to priests or receive the body of the Lord without previous sacramental confession. That's just what we were saying. Unless, so a qualification is is laid down, there is a grave reason, and there's no opportunity to confess. Mm. Okay. So if you have a grave reason to receive Holy Communion, and there's no opportunity to, to confess, in this case, it goes on in Canon 916, the person is to remember the obligation to make an act of perfect contrition, which includes the resolution of confessing as soon as possible. So basically, if you're in one of these situations where you 
really, it, it's, you really should receive Holy Communion, but confession is not available, either because there's a lack of confessors or not enough time to hear everyone's confession or something. And then you should make an act of contrition together with the resolution to go to the sacrament of penance as soon as possible. That is a form of repentance sufficient to be minimally, subjectively well-disposed to receive Holy Communion. So I know plenty of our students and maybe our missionaries who might struggle with habitual sins like Mm -hmm. pornography or um, drunkenness, and they go to Mass, they are sincerely sorry, and confessions just aren't available. And obviously, it depends a lot on the individual person, the sin, whether it was a sin or um, not. But I guess what I'm wondering is, is that kind of situation one in which they should receive Holy Communion after making an act of contrition? Or is there more to the first part of what you said, like a grave reason yeah, it to says, receive um, Holy Communion? Yeah, it lays down two, two qualifying conditions. There is a grave reason, and there is no opportunity to confess. What would be a grave reason to receive okay. Holy Communion? Sure, that's a good example, or a good question. Let me give an example that I think is very clear. Suppose you have... Uh, men who are in the army or the Marines or something, and they're preparing to go into battle. And you have, I mean, the, they don't know what the outcome of the battle could be. They, they could be at the end of their life, basically, for all they know. And mass is available, but there's just no way they can hear the confessions of thousands and thousands of, of troops. So, okay, that seems like there's a grave reason, right? You're, you're about to go into battle. You could die. Uh, confession is not available. Okay, so make as good of an act of contrition as you can uh, and resolve to go to confession as soon as you can at the next available opportunity. Uh, That would be an example of um, these two conditions being met. Now, I know that there are situations that are far less, how to put it, maybe dramatic than that, that are a little bit more humdrum uh, that people might run into. But, yeah, there's got to be a serious reason for a person to receive Holy Communion uh, without going to confession first. And if it seems to me that if you just have a missionary or a student who's on campus, you know, they're at a daily mass, they've got some serious sin on their soul, it would be better for them to wait to go to the sacrament of penance first uh, if they've got grave sin on their soul, okay? We want to leave a lot of room here for people to seek guidance from their particular campus ministers confessors, spiritual directors, because everybody's circumstances are slightly different and makes a difference. Their history, their habits, all those things make a difference. And so when it comes to highly particular situations, the best thing to do is talk with someone local who can give you some concrete advice. Yeah, that makes sense. Another very good reason to have a spiritual director. So uh, confessing, Grave sin was one of the... Not being conscious of any grave sin or going to con- and going to confession first, if you are. So that's really minimally the necessary thing, right? In the Eastern liturgy, at the elevations, the, the priest says, holy things for the holy. You know, so mm-hmm. holy communion is for those who are alive in Christ, who are in a state of grace. Wow, holy things for the holy. That's right. It's a very beautiful line. Yeah. So are there any other minimal dispositions? Sure. The catechism also talks about fasting. 
And we should just pause with that before we get into details about the Eucharistic fast and how long and those kinds of things and various circumstances. But we should just let the general point sink in. Since time immemorial in the church, going all the way back to the days of the early church, it has always been understood, both in the East and in the West, universally, that the ordinary, normal condition a person needs to be in in order to receive Holy Communion is to be in a condition of fasting. I just want to let that sink in for a moment, because we normally don't think that. No, we never talk never about clear. fasting. Yeah, we, we rarely talk about it. But it is the venerable and ancient tradition that to be worthy, to be minimally worthy, I guess we'd say, for Holy Communion, the person basically, generally, normally should be in a state of fasting. So why does fasting prepare us so well? It's a way of acknowledging in the body, not just paying lip service now, but, but a, a deed, an act of the body by which you say with the language of the body, so to speak, this is not just any ordinary food. This is different. This is the sacred banquet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to keep this different from every other form of eating in my life. This is a sacred act regarding a sacrament of the church, the sacrament of the Lord's body and blood. And the act of fasting uh, opens the mind and, and, and prepares a person. It helps a person to pr- enter into prayer. That's another thing we can talk about sometimes, just like the benefits of fasting in general. So fasting disposes a person to pray. A fast before the Eucharist will also dispose a person to pray. But also fasting is an act of of satisfaction for sin. And so we can offer it up and Mm -hmm. do a little penance for our sins, our venial sins, before we go in to receive Holy Communion. Beautiful. I remember stories from the life of Padre Pio where he would make people go to the last Mass of the day on Sunday as an act of reparation for their sins. And I remember the reason why was because people would fast until they received Holy Communion. And the last, fa- the last Mass of the day would be at like 5 p.m. And so it was a lot of hunger that they would be offering up. It was a bigger fast. But I think that the rules regarding what constitutes as fasting have changed. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Sure. Under the old code of canon law, which was promulgated in 1917, uh, the, the law of the Eucharistic fast was that one was not to take anything by mouth, either food or drink, including water, from midnight the night before. So if you, yeah, if you ate or drank anything after midnight, you would not approach to receive Holy Communion. Um, and so when people went to masses later in the morning, a lot of times people just couldn't make it, right? They couldn't make it that long without even taking so much as a sip of water. And so a lot of people would stay back from receiving Holy Communion because they just could not keep the fast. So that meant that at any one mass, there would be a, a fair number of people staying behind and not receiving Holy Communion some of them staying behind because they had serious sin on their soul and couldn't get to confession, uh, others because they simply did not keep the fast. And there was a kind of, maybe you could say camouflage for 
things that way. So people could stay back from Holy Communion without uh, necessarily announcing to the whole world, hey, I've committed some serious sin. After the Second Vatican Council, the church changed the law of the fast in the West. So now it is, we ask people to refrain from uh, food for one hour before Holy Communion, okay? So a person can drink water or take medicine. So the fast is a lot uh, less taxing now, but there's still this uh, condition of fasting a person should be in. And I do hope that the focus missionaries who are listening to this would take it to heart that it is part of their uh, task as an apostle, as an evangelist, as a to as a someone who's helping others and mentoring them along to teach other people about the Eucharistic fast, even though it's, even though it's so minimal now. Yeah, well, and I feel like the church is giving us the minimal because that's what everyone can do, mm-hmm. and right. so we want to be able to have unity with the people who are able to do the least because I don't know they have diseases or they're weaker in constitution, but that's also just the minimal. So it means that you can do more. And I kind of think that if you're a physically stronger person, if you're healthy and young, you should do more. It's so easy to completely forget about the fast altogether because it's only an hour before you receive communion. So basically, if you don't snack in the car on the way to church, then you can receive communion. That's right. So just to be clear, there are some other exceptions and conditions the church lays down about this. So those who are ill, for example are exempted from the law of the fast. So if you're in the hospital, for example, and someone brings you Holy Communion, even if you just ate, you could you could receive Holy Communion, those kinds of things. So the church takes into view, you know, if you're sick, um, okay, the law of the fast does not apply to you. Uh, but you're right that there is a kind of view to the minimum here, and that it is a matter of counsel. It's admirable. It's commendable, I think, for people to try to fast more before Holy Communion. And you could start very simple by saying, okay, let's try to make it one hour before Mass begins. That would be like maybe one step up. And if a person were to just strive to practice that sort of Eucharistic fasting, I really think it makes for a better disposition. Father, I can hear the missionaries and the students right now in my mind, all with one question. Does coffee count? Coffee? counts so uh it, the only exceptions are for medicine or water <laughs> no father i'd love to talk more about fasting but i want to move on um you said that there were minimal dispositions have we covered all of those those i think would be the minimal dispositions so to be in a state of grace right and to be fat in a condition of fasting okay, tell us well, about the better disposition okay let's talk about the better dispositions so the first one, I would say, is a living and active faith. Okay? Mm. Living, meaning you're in a, the state of grace that we've already talked about is minimal, but really active. So we want to try to cultivate faith before we go up to receive Holy Communion. I mean, even by getting to Mass a little bit early and spending a little bit of time in silence and just recalling, wait a second, I'm about to receive the body blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. I do believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. I believe. I do. And and to remember that this Mass 
is very much like that moment in the life of Zacchaeus. You know, he climbed the tree in order to catch sight of the Lord. And the Lord comes to Zacchaeus and says, come down. I must come and stay with you this day. That is the case. That is the truth. Every single time we go to mass to, and receive Holy Communion, the Lord basically says that to us. Do you believe that you are in the situation of Zacchaeus? Uh, that the Lord is basically saying to you, I must come and stay with you this day. If you simply make an act of faith in the real presence of Christ and believe that the situation is very much like that of Zacchaeus, your Holy Communion will be more fruitful. That's the, I would say, the first or the basic of the better dispositions, right? Or really to cultivate faith, to meditate on the real presence of Christ, um, to, to realize with awe, I, I'm about to receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. I mean, what a gift. That's, that's, that's a living and active faith. So that's one of the better dispositions. But there's another of the better dispositions, profound humility, okay? Profound humility. We want to realize as we are preparing for Mass, I do not deserve this. I do not have a natural right to Holy Communion. It's not something that God owes me as a matter of justice. This is a completely gratuitous, totally undeserved gift. And when I count up all the things I have done in my life, all my sins, and, and all the things I have done, like I can realize in a fresh way, I really, really, really do not deserve this. This is a sheer gift from the Lord. It's out of pure generosity. It's pure kindness from God that that moved him, if we can say, to establish the sacrament and to prepare the way for me to receive Holy Communion this day. So to come forward with an attitude of profound humility, okay, that will also uh, make for a more, more fruitful Holy Communion. It really will. So profound humility that way. The third one is confidence, confidence. We could even say unbounded confidence. So this kind of plays off the last one. So if we're very humble, we should realize, I do not deserve this. I do not have a right to this. This is a completely gratuitous gift from God to be able to receive Holy Communion. At the same time that we are aware of our own kind of nothingness, so to speak, before the grandeur of this gift, um, we should also be confident that the Lord is going to work something mighty and powerful in this sacrament. Here's where it helps to know something about the effects of the sacrament. So the conversation we had last time about here's all the things the sacrament will do, uh, to, to know those things, to believe in those things, but actually to count on the working power of the sacrament and to actually put that front and center in your mind. Like, okay, I've got my issues. I've got my problems. I am not deserving. I do not have a right, a natural right to this sacrament uh, in any way, but God is good. God is generous. 
God is powerful and he is going to work his effects in me. And I'm putting all my trust and all my confidence and all my hope in him. Uh, that kind of confidence really throws open the door of the heart to receive the working power of the sacrament. And here's where I really do recommend that people have some kind of preparatory prayer that they use uh, before going to Mass. There's prayers of St. Thomas Aquinas, prayer of St. Ambrose, there's prayer of St. Basil that we talked about last time. There's many of them, and I'm sure you could find many of them and make some of them available. There are, the saints have plenty of prayers for preparation for Holy Communion, and it would be good to maybe say one of those prayers. That is a commendable thing, and I do advise people to do that. There's a danger in that becoming routine as mm -hmm. well. So sometimes just freestyle pouring out your heart, telling the Lord you trust him, you're putting all your hope in him, you're counting on him to do great things in this, in this Holy Communion. That throws open the door of the heart. But really, the, the greatest of the better dispositions, we can say, the last and the greatest of them is really love and desire. Our hearts need to be stirred up and enkindled and to be really on fire with love. Like we get to receive. Well, first of all, we get to be in the presence of the Lord himself. Even apart from receiving, we just get to be in the presence of the eternal son of God, our Lord God and Savior, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Holy Trinity, the incarnate word is going to be right here. I mean, what an amazing, awe-inspiring, dumbfounding truth. It's just unbelievable. And he is so good and so generous and so kind that he would give us the grace to believe this, call us to come to this liturgy and to receive him. I mean, how could that not set your heart on fire? If you think about it, well, very often we don't think about it, and, and our hearts are not on fire. And it can be like, oh, yeah, we're just at Mass again. It's just one more Mass. No, we want to, to stir up and enkindle the gift that is within you through the laying on of hands, right? And through the grace you received in your, in your baptism, in your confirmation, and, and try to gather up all the love you've got for the Lord, for the real presence, for the Eucharist. But then desire, desire. So to really hunger and thirst. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The Eucharist is righteousness himself in person. So blessed are those who hunger and thirst for him. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for Jesus Christ, for his body, blood, soul, and divinity, and to say to the Lord, Lord, how I desire to receive you this very day. How I, des I welcome you. I hunger for you. I can't wait. I want you to come into my heart. If we have those sorts of dispositions, as we approach that sort of, sort of love and desire, that will make a massive difference. And, and there's so many examples from the lives of the saints. We could go on forever talking about that. So these are the better dispositions, we, we've called them. Um, faith, humility, confidence, and love. If we can try to 
cultivate those to the fullest extent we can before Mass even begins, and even through the course of the readings and the homily and whatnot, uh, that really does help us to be well disposed to receive Holy Communion in a really fruitful way. That makes so much sense. Um, I love that. Just faith, humility, confidence, love and desire. It's all kind of summed up really in those last words we say before we receive Holy Communion. Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. So the Lord, I am not worthy. That's humility. That's acknowledging. Okay, I've, I've got problems. I'm not as well disposed as I could be or should be, and I still have problems in my life. That's the humility. There, but it's also to believe, you know, you're going to enter my roof, under my roof. That's, that's faith, right? And the confidence, only say the word. My soul will be healed. That's confidence in God, okay? And if we say that with real love and desire, that's the best preparation for Holy Spirit. You're right. That prayer is so short, and yet it contains all four of those things. But that's such a perfect prayer that Holy Mother Church puts on our lips right before we receive. Yeah, there's an incredible wisdom that the church has in giving us that particular verse from the gospel right before Holy Communion. Now, Father James, I wanted to return to something that you touched on. You talked about how um, we need to receive communion with confidence and humility and things so that we're not just receiving communion out of routine. Yeah, indifferent sort of attitude. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just because the line got to your pew and maybe you're really tired that day and you spent the whole Mass being distracted. I've heard missionaries say to me, I'm not in serious sin, and yet I've wondered if I should receive communion because I spent Mass distracted, or sometimes I'm so tired in the morning, I realize that I just received communion after I'm sitting back down in the pew and I haven't thought about it at all. And yet when they take that to uh, their priest or other holy people in their lives, Mm -hmm. it seems like people always return to the point that you should receive communion because uh, in Vatican II, they quoted St. Therese as saying that Jesus does not descend from heaven to remain in the tabernacle, but to enter into my heart. And so I think that there's a real truth to that. But at the same time, people are kind of sensing in their interior lives, something feels off here. Um, Can you speak into that? Sure, I'm glad you brought that up. When St. Thomas Aquinas is commenting on this passage from St. Paul that we quoted earlier about, you know, receiving worthily and unworthily, St. Thomas himself does raise the question of frequent Holy Communion or refraining from Holy Communion. Is it better to receive frequently or not frequently? If we receive frequently, it seems like we could be set on fire again and again by the sacrament, and we could really grow and advance very quickly. But it seems like we could also become nonchalant or indifferent or, uh, yeah, we could very easily go forward and receive Holy Communion if we were uh, in the state of mind that you, you described. And he asked the question, is it commendable to receive frequently or to refrain most of the time? And his answer is literally, it depends on the person. Some people are going to 
really profit from receiving frequently. And so it's commendable for them to receive frequently. Uh, But there are some people that really experience a kind of slide into nonchalance or indifference uh, towards the sacrament. And it could very well be commendable for them to refrain from receiving Holy Communion. Okay? St. Thomas does not try to lay down a general principle for all people at all times, like you should receive frequently, you should not receive frequently. He really does say it's a judgment call that needs to be made relative to the individual and their propensities and where they are in the spiritual life. So that is what is, um, that, that's his teaching on the whole matter, uh, which is very interesting because sometimes you hear it said that prior to the Second Vatican Council, no one ever said it was commendable to receive Holy Communion very well. That's not quite true. St. Thomas did say it was commendable to receive frequently for some people. But he also said it's commendable for some people to refrain. Uh, it just depends on the tendencies, the subjective tendencies of different people and where they are at different times and seasons in their spiritual life. More wisdom from St. Thomas Aquinas. But right. yeah, that, that seems to be very prudent that if you notice at a certain time in your spiritual life, I think that this has become routine for me. Maybe it's a good idea to refrain from receiving Holy Communion even just for a little bit so that you can increase that desire for Jesus by longing for him. And like we talked about in the episode that we did, the Mass as a Sacrifice, you are still powerfully participating in the Mass by uh, offering the sacrifice of Jesus to the Father in union with the priest and being present in that way, even if you don't receive Holy Communion. Yeah, I mean, I can quote, this is a quote directly from St. Thomas Aquinas in his commentary on Colossians. Quote, if someone feels that it helps him make progress to the fervor of his love of Christ and in his strength to resist sins, he ought to receive frequently. But if someone feels in himself less reverence for this sacrament by receiving it frequently, he should be advised to receive it rarely. End quote. I think that that really speaks to some of the things that our missionaries go through and just the church in our times. It's an incredible gift that going to daily mass is so available for us, mm-hmm. but we want to be able to grow in our dispositions to receive the Lord so that it can be as fruitful as possible. That's right. That's why it's so important to think about these dispositions, talk about them like we did today, and then proactively make an effort to cultivate these dispositions before Mass begins. Oh, this has given me a lot to meditate on and to pray with. So thank you so much for joining me today. Could you offer a blessing for our listeners? Thanks for having me, and I will very happily offer all of you a blessing. May Almighty God bless you. May the precious blood of our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ come down upon all of you and protect you from all evil. May the spirit of the living God, the spirit of truth, rush upon you, fill your minds with light, and may you all be guided and built up in every way more and more to receive Holy Communion to great profit to your souls. 
May the peace and blessing of Almighty God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come down on you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Father James, and thanks everyone for listening. Amen.